Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, August 15th, 2008. This week, episode 93 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, here in Studio B. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. It's always a pleasure. Good day, Cliff. And at the controls is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good day, Chris. All right. Uh, we don't have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on yet. We're hoping he comes in a little bit later. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Steven Spivak, technical advisor for the Restoration Industry Association and Professor Emeritus at the University of Maryland and uh, one of the best-known restoration experts in the country. He's also, we've also got uh, a couple questions. We were going to have IE Connections What's News, but Glenn can't make it, so he sent in a couple questions uh, instead. Then we'll come back at the end. We're going to have the roundtable. Hopefully, Dr. Wild will join us by then, but we're looking forward to spending the hour with Dr. Spivak. We've been working on the IAQRadio.com website. We've added a blog every week after the show. Check it out when you get a chance. We'd first be glad to Thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, a newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, for restoration and abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right. We've got links, by the way, to all those sponsors' uh, websites on the iaqradio.com website. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. You can just press the number one now and join the show. looks like we've got a nice group of listeners coming in already. Or you can go to the iaqradio.com website and click the link that says go to the show. We will take suggestions, requests, etc. if you email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can also get those IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz 
That's at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's send it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Sorry to report our trivia champion, Matt Friedrichson, was close, but no cigar last week. That was a pretty tricky question. Right, so that one's still in play. Okay, the microband trivia question for Friday, August 15th, 2008. In 1904, a fire broke out in the basement of a commercial building in Baltimore. After taking hold of the entire structure, it leaped from building to building until it engulfed an 80-block area of the city. To help combat the flames, reinforcements for firefighting came from New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. They responded immediately, but their efforts were to no avail. Their fire hoses could not connect to the fire hydrants in Baltimore because they didn't fit the hydrants in Baltimore. Forced to watch helplessly as the flames spread, the fire destroyed approximately 2,500 buildings and burned for more than 30 hours. It was evident that a new national standard had to be developed to prevent a similar occurrence in the future. Up until that time, each municipality had its own unique set of standards for firefighting equipment. As a result, research was conducted of over 600 fire hose couplings from around the country, and one year later, a national standard was created to ensure uniform fire safety equipment and the safety of Americans nationwide. We want you to name the building in which the fire occurred. All right. Okay. Cliff, you're going to introduce our guest this week since he's a good friend of yours. No problem. Let's let's do his music. Great. Dr. Stephen M. Spivak, Ph.D., was appointed in January 2007 to chair the Science Advisory Council for the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, known as CIRI. He has over 30 years' experience in consulting, advising, and writing on fibers, textiles, standards for the cleaning and janitorial industry, professional care. He served on many governmental trade professional associations and worked for the U.S. government as well. He's a technical advisor for standards, textiles, and furnishings for the Restoration Industry Association, RIA. And he's worked for them for over 30 years. His present interests include cleaning products, eco-labeling claims, environmentally preferable cleaning and maintenance services, green cleaning sciences, terms, and certification. He also served 30 years uh, in higher education at the University of Maryland, where he is a professor emeritus. He has recognized authority on the performance care and cleanability 
uh, on fire safety, standards for textiles, wearing apparel, protective clothing, carpet, and furnishings. He serves as a fire science advisor with the U.S. National Association of State Fire Marshals. He has served four terms as board member of the American National Standards Institute, ANSI, and is a recipient of the highest awards given by both ASTM and by the Standards Engineering Society. A prolific writer, Dr. Spivak authored many scientific papers and reports and co-authored two books on standards and standardization. Good afternoon, Dr. Spivak. Thank you for joining us on IAQ Radio. Thank you, gentlemen, and uh, this is Steve Spivak. Thank you very much, uh, Joe and Cliff, for the kind introduction. What is fire protection engineering, and why is it important? Fire protection engineering is actually in the School of Engineering, and what it is is applying engineering principles, computer modeling, and design to provide fire-safe structures, products, and systems in the public. It's very different from, from firefighting or fire science because it's a true engineering discipline, and the University of Maryland has the only fire protection engineering undergraduate bachelor's bachelor of science degree in uh, in all of US and Canada. How long have you taught at the university? Or I I, it, I don't know if you still teach there, but if you, you know, how long did you teach there? No, I taught uh, for 31 years until 2001, and then I became professor emeritus and I still tell my friends that's not retired, it just means I'm in my third or fourth career. And by leaving the university where I had been full-time, it provided the opportunity to increase my work with this industry that I love, cleaning and restoration, through both the Restoration Industry Association and then eventually taking on the uh, chair of the science advisors with uh, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. So I'm much more heavily involved now with uh, cleaning and restoration even than I was uh, for the previous uh, 25 or 30 years when I was at the university. What, you, what got you interested in textiles? Uh, my late father was um, a, a actually a designer and a salesman of textile fabrics for the custom tailor trade for men's and women's um, custom-made clothing in New York City. And I was uh, at the Bronx High School of Science and was going into engineering. And I found out about this thing called textile engineering. It's probably uh, as unknown as fire protection engineering. And so uh, I went in, loved it, and have stayed involved with textiles and furnishings and, of course, the cleaning ever since. I guess as a follow-up question to that, why is textile flammability an important issue? Uh, it's important for two reasons. One, there are thousands of clothing-related burn injuries um, with hundreds of deaths every single year from where textiles in burn injury are often textiles and clothing are the first item to ignite. And in house fires, residential house fires, upholstered furniture is often the first item to ignite. And if that gets out of control within a short period of time, the entire uh, residential structure and everybody inside is under serious threat of injury or death. So textiles and furnishings and fire safety are all very closely related and still remain, notwithstanding the government regulations, 
uh, a very important issue of um, of in potential injury and uh, and death to uh, to persons. I've got a, a follow up on that, and it's not something we talked about uh, prior. But I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I live three miles as the crow flies from where Flight 93 crashed. Right. And for months, um, my wife and I picked up small pieces of what looked like textiles in in our yard after the after the crash. They were like charred black woven. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on why they went as far as they did? And you know, these these went beyond my home for miles and miles. But also, what what components they might have been? Yes. Uh, first of all, the pieces, you know, small pieces that were charred or burned, uh, can be given the you know the wind pattern can be light enough to be blown around and you know and distributed widely. What's interesting that most people don't appreciate is the difference in ordinary textile fire safety between what you're wearing around your office or your home, what we or every listener now who's sitting and wearing, you know, just in their offices, versus what happened on Flight 93. Um, normally, people think that cotton, cotton polyester blends, rayon, uh, viscose, flax or linen are the safest to wear around ordinary usage and that nylon and polyester and the synthetics are the most dangerous because they melt and shrink. And in ordinary usage, just as we're doing now, it's exactly the opposite from everybody expects. The cotton, the rayon, cotton polyester blends, um, or any of those that literally are the same as paper, they burn like paper. Uh, around small ignition sources, candles or a hot stove or range or a wood stove, they're the most dangerous. However, if in a completely different situation like Flight 93 where there's going to be a massive jet fuel fire, then in that case, which is not what we're exposed to, you know, God forbid, unless it's, you know, very, very small risk, then in that case, the nylon or the polyester or acrylics or synthetics may not be the best choice. But that's not what usually happens. People think that the synthetics, the thermoplastics, are the most dangerous. And in fact, around any small ignition source, uh, the nylon and polyester are much more likely to simply uh, melt and shrink away from the flame and self-extinguish. Or just, um, if it's a small flame, you just bang it right out when you slap it with your hands and it goes out. And people uniformly think and expect the opposite, and it's wrong. Have you been involved in consulting after you know commercial fires like the Beverly Hills Supper Club or other you know situations such as that? Yeah, the not myself directly because my expertise tends to be personal injury fires, including protective clothing, firefighters turnout gear, or ordinary mm -hmm. residential clothing. When it's a big structural fire. The department that I was uh, the chair of for eight years, Fire Protection Engineering at Maryland, which if people are interested is uh, www.fpefireprotectionengineering.umd.edu. They become very involved as engineering consultants, and in fact they have been since the, the World Trade Center fire, and those uh, analyses and computer models and reconstructions is still going on. So many people I know do that, but the large-scale fires are not my expertise. 
Okay. Well, you have a long-time relationship with the uh, Restoration Industry Association, formerly the Association of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. How did you find them, or how did they find you? Uh, it goes back to 1975-1976. Uh, their headquarters were and still are in the greater Washington, D.C. area, first originally Virginia and then Maryland, and I was at the University of Maryland, and they were looking for someone with a fiber and textile background to do an occasional technical analysis letter for members or to write an article here or there um, for their magazine, Cleaning and Restoration. And I love them, and I guess the people back then, tongue-in-cheek, and I'm putting it in quotes, lied to me by telling me how simple and how little there was to do. And it got me snookered into doing this, and of course, I really found it intriguing. And that was, I guess, 32, 33 years ago, and I've been loving it ever since. And I must have, I don't know the count, 300 or more articles in cleaning and restoration, you know, and regularly quoted, quoted in clean facts and uh, cleaning and maintenance management and and other such ISSA Today magazines. So they snookered yeah, me know. in is the answer. <laughs> And then you probably also have more than 250 good friends in that association. That's correct, uh, it, including well. some of the people who are speaking on the on the microphones. Thank you. Yeah, yeah that, that, absolutely. Well, you know, when when we buy a piece of furniture and you lift up, you know, like a sofa or a chair, uh, yeah, we we lift up the cushions and there's this label that's that's on there. First of all, does it mean anything? And you know, is it important? And uh, you know, where does that come from? Yeah, there could be two or three labels. And let me start. And by the way, for the readers subsequently, the listeners who may be listening in, often there are articles I've written for cleaning and restoration that answer some of these in more detail. So if they send in emails, they could find those articles. But the most useless of the labels is the one that says, warning, not to be removed except by consumer. And then it goes on and it tells you, and this is required by most state law, it tells you what is the interior components of the material, polyurethane foam, polyester fiber, you know, whatever is the interior stuffing. What it does not require or tell you by federal regulation, unfortunately, it doesn't tell you what the face fabric is, which to cleaners and restorers is absolutely the most critical item. Um, I think originally this interior components thing came about because of the use of horsehair, and actually a you know a, a minuscule but you know a threat of either anthrax or some bacterial uh, in the very very early furnishings. I'm talking about early 1900s, um, and so that label to me is useless, and I have said so publicly um, in letters to the Federal Trade Commission and others. The other labels you will see, uh, one of course is critically important, which is somebody who in the stream of commerce either manufactures, distributes, or sold a piece of furniture, so who represents it. And the third label, which or fourth, third or fourth, which could be there or not, are the clean, voluntary industry cleanability codes, and they keep expanding their version, but these are basically the W, W hyphen S, uh, um, X, you know, for example, those cleanability codes. And then there could be a UFAC hang tag, Upholstered Furniture Action Council, um, and we're waiting for the Consumer Product Safety Commission to update the flammability. But that's a voluntary industry labeling program testing the 
furniture if it's tested for compliance with um, cigarette ignition resistance. So the I'm answer hard. is some of the labels are useful and some of them may be absolutely useless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, Cliff is a lot more, you know, knowledgeable about the restoration side of things. So I'd like to ask a quick question about the CIRI, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. What is right. CIRI and, and what do they do? Yeah, thank you, Joe. CIRI is relatively new, meaning we're in our third year. And it's a 501c3, meaning it's an educational science research organization. It is not an industry trade association like all the associations you know. It's like a, it's like a, a school or a university in a way. And its mission is to really develop and report on research and science related to cleaning. Um, and one of, its, you know, one of its outcomes is healthier environments through cleaning science. And its vision, if I can put it in quotes, is you can't believe your eyes because only science can see. And what that quickly means is after 100 years in our industry of often just giving cleaning or restoration, uh, the eyeball check and said, well, it looks good. You know, as you know, the whole mold area has moved into significant science measurements, uh, Siri is across the board, all the way from uh, janitorial, custodial, through contract cleaning, uh, building service contracting, and then all the way through professional cleaners, will be using and is using science as its, quote, vision, meaning you have to test, you have to measure to know whether you have really improved the cleanliness, the hygiene, um, and, the, um, and the value of the item that you're working on. Siri... Siri... Yes, finally, Siri just finished its second. It has international symposia on cleaning science, this past one, cleaning science and health. Uh, they're typically at a university. We were at University of Nevada, 2007, and 2008 this past year, University of Maryland. And those videos, which are really science and research on cleaning and restoration, are available for purchase. What notable progress, if any, has Siri made? Well, it's done two things. One, the Siri symposia that I just mentioned are the only venue, in my opinion, unlike most of the industry trade shows. The Siri symposia has no exhibits, right? There are no exhibitors, no equipment, no products, no chemicals available for sale. It is a one and a half, in this case, two and a half day meeting where all of the presentations are science and research and technology driven. Several of them, in fact, presented this past year by people who were known you know, in our industry, talking about uh, steam disinfection of carpet, carpet cleaning, and others. There's not another industry meeting, in my opinion, that's as rigorous as that. And all of the papers that are submitted and accepted are pre-reviewed. So it's not like people get simply invited and send in papers and they're chosen. They're all reviewed in advance. That makes it different. And Siri's website, which is ciri-research.org, is being developed, still in its you know, younger stages, but being developed as a major kind of independent resource for cleaning science. Um, and the last thing is there are five science advisors, of which I now have the honor to chair. And several of them are known, Dr. Michael Berry, 
Um, Mike Berry is well-known. Marilyn Black from Air Quality Sciences. Dr. Eugene Cole from Brigham Young University. Um, and Elizabeth Scott from Simmons College um, Home Health and Hygiene and myself. So Siri has established this five-person five kind of high-level science advisory council that is really meant to work for the industry. So I'm, I'm just curious, um, when you do research on how well things are cleaned, I'm assuming you're looking for not just dirt and dust, but also allergens and, and mold and bacteria and whether they've been cleaned from these products. Is that, is that accurate? Well, we will be doing that. Siri, there is a press release out that Siri is soon to be moving into uh, a major two-year or more research program on clean standards and cleaning science for schools K through 12, where we will looking, be looking at a whole variety of scientific in-field measurements. Some, you know, they're used in the laboratory that we'll be testing in the field, others that we'll be developing for field use so that cleaners and restorers um, can have actual tools that they can use in the field. Um, ATP, you know, which is known to some of the people for measuring total bio load. That's just one of several we'll be looking at. We're not at the moment assessing the differences and rating or evaluating products, but what we are doing is showing the industry themselves how to begin to use science and technology to their own benefit um, and how we can, in fact, help the whole industry by providing this research in a very independent, unbiased way. That sounds very interesting. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back uh, when we've got some more data in and talk about that. I would be delighted. The other, I might just mention there's another research project Siri is doing that is of direct interest to the industry. We are in the midst of a, again, a multi-year program to evaluate what are the real-life annual maintenance costs in schools to maintain uh, VCT or vinyl composite tile floors versus uh, carpeted or you know soft surface floors. Uh, that project is now entering its second phase. We are go. We'll be going into schools very promptly with that research, and again, not evaluating what they're doing that's right or wrong, but really capturing what's current practice on hard floor and soft surface um, care and cleaning weekly, monthly, and then develop the protocol, which we're doing now, the actual measurements, how can you consistently measure in a really, in a, in a real life, but reasonably scientific way, how can you capture those data and begin to estimate the annual costs of, of flooring uh, care and maintenance in schools? So that's another project that, uh, that we have ongoing. Now, one of the things that interests me uh, about the chemistry side of this is that you know, oftentimes we do something and we think that we're doing it because it's going to make things better. And in the end, it, it really doesn't happen. And, you know, the government has introduced different species to uh, prey upon other species and the one that they introduced, you know, get out of control and, and so on and so forth. And, and it, what I'm wondering is whether or not, you know, with all this green chemistry, whether anyone studies unintended consequences. You know, for instance, if I'm using something which may be safer, maybe it doesn't clean as well. So maybe it takes more labor, so that cost goes up. 
or maybe because it doesn't clean as well, I need to use more water and you know, you know, more cycles and and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that your organization is really one of the first ones that's looking at some of those things rather than just looking at this from an environmental standpoint. You know, what is better for the environment and how does this cleaning solution affect global warming and so on and so forth. So uh, my hat's off to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, one of the things I personally have been doing with Siri is taking on the issue of trying to sort out, um, and I refer to it as cleaning green, but and I have a definition for it that uh, that has been published and people are welcome to use. But what it does does is it says, and this implies back to Cliff's question, it's not green cleaning because the product or the system ultimately first needs to clean and clean effectively. And then in addition, if it's green or environmentally friendly, that may be a benefit in many cases. So I'm referring to it as cleaning green. But there are two things that are going on that are important, as Cliff implied. One, the suppliers, the distributors, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Jansan product industry and the professional cleaning product industry have hundreds of products. One of my colleagues recently uh, at a meeting in Amsterdam, the Interclean, said he counted 800 products on the European market that were claiming green or environmental claims. So it's very confusing. So there are tons of products and claims out there. The people who are confused are the end users. And the end users are the cleaners, the restorers, and of course consumers um, as well as you know, building owners, facilities managers, they're all confused. What I have done, I published it in Cleaning and Restoration, and I continue to update it, is I've at least been keeping a count um, and a record and provide information on which are the different certification programs. So one is knowing and beginning to understand the competitive certification programs. Green Seal uh, is one um, Echo Logo or Environmental Choice is another uh, products designed with the U.S. EPA uh, designed for the environment, the DFE formulator program. There are at least another seven or eight in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, there are probably 20 or 25 in Europe. So one is sorting out the, um, the different certification programs. The other message that I have is don't just rely on a product that carries this third-party or independent certification because there are many, many products and companies are choosing to declare green themselves and then hopefully they provide the documentation or the information on their website. Um, the answer ultimately, Cliff, is yes, there can be compromises. Uh, there may be differences when products are formulated to be environmentally preferable or with the absence of some of the typical products they've had before. But there's no green bullet or magic answer. Um, every user, every cleaner or restorer has to have full confidence and rely on their supplier when they're looking for the products, and then demand and ask for the information that substantiates the claims. If you're claiming green, um, or if you're saying that uh, these products work just as well or just as effectively, it's a fair question to say, how does one know? How do you know? What tests have you done? Give me samples to, uh, pr to prove to myself that, in fact, uh, 
they work adequate, adequately and they work well. In many cases, they do. But people ask me, you know, tell me which is green, which is the best certification. There simply isn't a, a, a one-shot answer. It's not never going to be that simple. I, I noticed that, uh, and I, I wish Glenn Feldman were here, but uh, maybe you know off the top of your head, he had a headline in last month's IE Connections about the, government, the U.S. government somehow getting into um, helping sort out the confusion over green products. Are you familiar with what they're attempting to do? Um, I normally, I missed that particular article, but what he might have been referring to, it could be one or two, the Federal Trade Commission, which has green marketing guidelines, you'll find them on the ftc.gov website. Those green marketing guidelines, meaning if anybody is marketing or advertising or claiming um, environmental or eco-friendly claims, what's the substantiation behind that? That process at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission has been undergoing review this year. And it may be, um, and I missed that particular article, but it that, may be that, that in it. fact, yep. yeah, those review guidelines are now uh, back out in for public comment in the federal record. Um, but they are one of several different types of guidelines. I mean, the U.S. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency has agree has procurement guidelines. The uh, General Services Administration, U.S. Federal Supply Service. As it will have a qualified products list for so-called green products. The disadvantage is that everybody has a different way to determine or supposedly uh, quantify or qualify what's green. And that's the confusion to all of us who are cleaners and restorers. The, uh, well, before we go into the next segment here, uh, we need to take a quick break and thank our sponsors. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, for restoration and abatement contractors, shop at jondon.com. Okay, let's go into our second half here with Dr. Steven Spivak. If you'd like to call in, it's 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547 and you can just press the number one, and you can text message us as well. I've got a couple questions that were sent in earlier in the week. What we'd like to do now is um, move over into the standard section of things a little bit, Dr. Spivak. Um, you've done a lot of work with standards. You've received some prestigious awards for your work in standards. Uh, what makes you so passionate about standards? Well, the way it started and what makes me passionate about it is you know and every listener knows how critically important standards are to business and industry, quality, safety, imports and exports, reliability, I mean, all of those, that procurement, everything. However, um, if you go around technical colleges, community colleges, colleges and universities, almost nobody ever learns anything about standards. If they use them, someone takes a standard or a standards handbook, throws it at a student and says, here, here's the cookbook, follow it. But where the standards came from 
what the terms mean, such as a guideline or voluntary industry standard, what's one, what's the other. They are never, ever taught or educated with few exceptions. And I got into it because I was crazy enough about 20, 30 years ago at the University of Maryland to introduce a complete 15-week, 40, 45-hour course on standards and standardization. And that was so unusual at the time, and there are a few more now, and I'm delighted for that. That was so unusual that every major standards organization, ASTM, ANSI, and others stood up and said, gee, there's a real-life person teaching standards. You know, Give them a hug and latch on to them. And that's, that kind of oddball experiment of mine is what pulled me into standards policy, national standards. I eventually chaired um, in Geneva, Switzerland, in fact, funded by ANSI, uh, an ISO policy committee on consumer standards for five years. So it's been a parallel interest of mine. And I, you know, I stop with this. I'm delighted to see so many standards coming down from the respective organizations um, that are in our industry. You know, ASHRAE, IICRC, RIA has a brand new rug cleaning standard. Uh, the IESO will be developing standards. So this is critically important to our entire industry. We've got a thing called the acronym police here. I've got to, I've got to pull you over for just a minute. Let's start with ANSI. That's the American National Standards Institute, correct? Institute. And people should okay. know that ANSI does not write standards. The only thing it does is it provides a system for uh, providing a process, and then if acceptable, putting its name on the process by saying this is a an approved American national standard. The equivalent would be Standards Council of Canada. You know, if we have Canadians in the SCC, uh, does the, would would be doing the same in Canada and Mexico and others. And what about in Europe? Do they have similar? Yes, every every country probably. I think ISO, the, and it's by the way, it's the International Organization for Standardization is its proper name. The ISO probably has 150 country members. Every single one has a national standards body. And it's very interesting to your listeners, there are only two, I believe, in the entire world that are not national standards bodies, not funded or reliant upon their own federal government, and that's the United States and Switzerland. <laughs> Every other of the 100 or 150 others are certainly funded or directly out of their government. What does ASTM stand for and what do they do? Well, what it used to stand for um, was American Society for Testing and Materials. And again, they do no testing. However, what's happened is because standards are competitive. They're competitive between the standards I mentioned before in our industry, and they're competitive nationally. So all of the organizations that begin their name with American or national or Canadian have almost all dropped their name, and they're now using abbreviations. So when you see the names written out as NFPA, which is it is, they're hiding, not hiding, you know, they are no longer national, they're international. ASTM, international in which previously it was American headquartered, but it has participants from 60 or 70 countries around the world. So all of these organizations, 
you know, ASHRAE, American society, they're no longer American, they're international. So that's why you tend to see, and it's confusing, just the abbreviations and not the full names. They're doing it for a reason, but it doesn't help us because we don't see what the name really says. ASTM, by the way, is the ASTM International is probably is the largest voluntary standards developer, I think, almost in the entire world by the number of its of its standards. And I've been very involved with their textile committee um, and their fire safety committee, and in part their consumer standards committee for decades. I'm not sure whether this is going to be a two-part question or not, based on how you answer it. One of the things that Joe and I heard you say is that standards are competitive. And why? You know, what is the reasoning for this, or what is the motivation? The reasoning is two. One, ultimately, the marketplace and the users decide which are the most valuable, the best written, the most comprehensive, and the most acceptable standards to them. So you could have two or three standards that are competing in a certain area. Um, some may have been written totally by industry. Some may have been written you know, in ASTM or ASHRAE. Some may and some may not have uh, ANSI designation in front of them. But notwithstanding what they say, ultimately the value and the usefulness of the standard will prevail amongst the users. So that's uh, that's critically important, and you know, in every country and in every industry, uh, the best standards are the ones that are going to make it uh, in the marketplace. Cliff, there was one other, I think, part to your question that I missed. Well, I think I think I think Joe's going to answer. I guess we'll, the follow-up would be, you know, do these standards either build or bar trade? They do both. Standards have the capability of promoting trade. You know, an example would be, let's say Microban or some, you know, who is um, exporting to the European market or any of our uh, restoration equipment suppliers. They can either comply with one European standard called, a, you know, EN, a European norm. Norms are words for standards. Or they would have to com comply with 10 or 15 different country standards uh, within the European Union. So if you have one good standard where you test once, you comply with the standard once, and then it's accepted regionally, that's the theory. But in practice, different countries and different nations have different standards, and it can be very confusing. In the, under the free trade agreement, the United States, Canada, and Mexico are ungo on, on, undergoing, it's probably seven, six, seven years now, and continuing, a harmonization of their standards. So this free trade agreement of the Americas, particularly Canada, United States, and Mexico, a lot of activity in the electrical area, electrical components between underwriters' laboratories and UL Canada and others to harmonize standards so they're not barriers, but in fact that they promote easy trade. Let me. Uh, I've got a couple questions that were sent in. Um, one's from uh, from Glenn Feldman, actually. He's got about three here, but let, let's start with one. This kind of fits well. There seems to be a big push for developing standards in the cleaning and restoration industry, and, and these standards are these standards making organizations, I should say, 
are mostly turning to ANSI for approval of their standards. Um, does the ANSI approval really make a big difference? Uh, the answer is yes, but not always. And I'll give you examples. Um, yes, because ANSI or at the international level, you know, ISO, you know, like ISO 9001 or 14001, people recognize those standards. And so ANSI provides a process to produce standards that would become approved as American national standards. However, and this comes from someone who served 12 years, I think it's a national record of mine on the patients on the ANSI board. Um, <laughs> there, it's a slow, complicated, it can be slow and complicated and laborious a process. And when industry needs, in some cases, to produce standards by its own consensus, uh, they may or may not choose to go the ANSI route or, you know, or an ASHRAE route or something like that. And so there are standards that are national consensus you know, by third parties, such as ANSI, and there are others are not. And each of the processes, because of time and commitments and money um, and rapidity of getting the job done, have advantages and disadvantages. So you can't just say because there's a stamp you know, from some independent party that that necessarily is the best. Again, you've got to look at what are the contents, how is it developed, and how well does it meet uh, industry needs. And let me add yeah. one. Go ahead. I, I wanted to just talk about this issue of a guideline versus a standard, which seems Please. to come up as a confusion in almost everybody's discussion. I'll give you not only my opinion, but it's in my, my book on standardization essentials, and if I were ever called to court, I would speak to it in the same way. In my opinion, there is no difference between an industry guide or an industry guideline and a standard, a voluntary standard, for the following reason, quickly. If you look at ASTM International or my book or any others on standards, you will see that under the term standard comes definitions of terms, test methods, you know, a method of test, or what's called a recommended practice or a guideline, which is like a test method but a little more general, and then specifications and ratings, and they could be voluntary or mandatory standards. So a guideline, in my expert opinion, is only one type of a standard which could be voluntary or could later become mandatory or regulatory. So people think, well, standard is tough and rigorous and, and required, and a guideline is kind of loose and wishy-washy, but that's okay because it's more flexible. That is not correct at all uh, as a distinction. A guideline is one type of a standard, and the example I'll give you is the most recent uh, Restoration Industry Association. The title is the RIA standard, um, a voluntary industry guide and recommended practice for rug cleaning. So in that case, I've kind of merged in at my suggestion several of these terms under the rubric of a standard. So I hope that clarifies the point. It won't convince people, but I assure you a guideline and a voluntary industry standard are the same thing. Well, it, it helps me a lot because I, 
I go through this all the time. I teach these courses and I, for mold remediation and indoor air quality and indoor environmentalists. And the question comes up all the time. I've got an EPA guideline here. I've got a New York City guideline here. I've got a, an assumed-to-be ANSI-approved uh, IICOC standard. Which do I follow and which, you know, which carries the most weight? And uh, it's been a tough question to answer. Yeah, I agree. Um, but people should understand in the first round, they are all versions of, of standards, whatever you call them. Some may be government standards, some may be state and local or county, others may be building codes, you know, which are forms of standards, which can be voluntary or regulatory, um, or industry, industry practices and guidelines, when they come out in the form of a, of a document, is a voluntary industry standard. Now, which one they should use, ultimately, is the decision of the user in terms of, hey, which one is most useful to me and which one will be accepted in the business or the particular job that I'm doing in that locale. And that's a very, it's a very good example, Joe, of what you said, of the competitiveness between standards. In our industry, we often have two or three or four competing standards and guidelines, including what we call industry, meaning in-house standards, the particular process standard of a certain company or a franchise organization or a system provider. And all of those exist, and you know the user has to pick and choose what they think is best or if they're working with an insurance agent you know, or, um, or their customers, they've got to satisfy the ultimate user that they've followed uh, the best practice or the recommended practice, and it could be any one of, any one of those. I guess that uh, helps me with uh, a question that was sent in from Carl Grimes, and it's almost like a statement. He said, because there is not just one standard but several, and because there is no clear ranking of which trumps what and because all standards allow deviations is it defensible to state which standard you selected for a particular job provide the evidence supporting your choice and then document that the procedures complied with the standard it sounds to me like you're saying absolutely that's correct i think that's a it's a very good statement uh, that summarizes the issue and it helps people understand that, again, there's no one, there's not necessarily, in most of our cases, one standard you point to and say, this one's the best. The answer is, which is the most applicable to your situation, to your business practice, and that you can rely upon, and then document, this is what I used, this is what uh, was the standard of choice, um, and fully document that it was complied with. And that's at least the best documentably approach. Um, subsequently, someone could argue they may have been a better standard, but at least you're referencing the standard that you use. People should be careful. I add one note. Standards, not the ones from the federal government, which are in the open, you know, in, in free and open use, but standards by any other organization are copyrighted. And people should, and I see it happening in our industry all the time, People just photocopy standards, they attach them to emails, they send them around. That's a violation of, um, of copyright use. You're allowed one fair use for yourself copy, but standards are generally purchased or available by permission. But we shouldn't be making just copies of published organizational standards and routinely send them around all over the place, which everyone does. 
because that's a violation of uh, fair use copyright. Can I ask you to clarify these terms? And I'm going to combine two different questions that we have from listeners. All right, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, has a document which is called ACR 2006 that refers to itself as an industry standard. The IICRC S500 has a document which is ANSI approved, and they say that the document is a procedural standard in its preface, and it also calls itself a standard of care in the document. Another document, which is the ASHRAE 62-1-2007, uses the term special note, national voluntary consensus standard. And you know, to bring in this other question, which I think is, is the same, are, is there a difference between a standard, a code, and a guideline, and are all of these minimums? I mean, Good I can repeat question. it for you if you want. Okay. Good question. Uh, let's. I, <laughs> I'll try to answer that in two minutes instead of uh, an hour or two. Um, okay. In in every case, you know, people are call using terms and calling things such as an industry standard, or a national voluntary consensus standard, or an ANSI approved procedural standard. And in each case, what someone should simply ask next is, and I think it's fair to go back, whether it's the NATCO or ASHRAE or anybody else, and say, okay, give me a one-line documentation that supports why you said that. There is nothing wrong with NADCA saying it's developed an industry standard or a voluntary industry standard or requiring it you know, mandatory for their members, for example. Um, when uh, IICRC is saying that they are uh, ANSI-approved, um, in the cases where they have the ANSI Federation, ANSI has approved those standards, that's correct. So it implies that it was done under a process which is uh, matching uh, the procedures of consensus and due process uh, to make it an American national standard. And so, you know, it would carry the designation ANSI slash IICRC. And when they say a procedural standard of care, what they're referring to is they have followed, to the best extent that they can, the procedures that were accepted by ANSI and are generally accepted uh, by ANSI and ASTM and others. And you'll find those detailed in, um, in, you know, in my book on standardization essentials. Where ASHRAE says um, it is also a national voluntary consensus standard, uh, they you know, they're making the same claim. However, understand that some broad-based industry, uh, I shouldn't pick an example, some, but some industry association can write with members from all over the United States a process whereby they establish their own consensus and they can call it a national, and it's voluntary within the industry, a national voluntary consensus standard it may not carry or may not have been submitted for ANSI. And within their own documentation, that's not necessarily wrong. It may be, it may be true. So you need to look at what it is that they've used or defined to substantiate that claim. And what I'm saying, and I think Joe should do it and Cliff and I do it, is go back to these organizations. They often don't get asked. 
You say, hey, you made that claim. It's like eco, eco, eco green labeling. You say, hey, you've made that claim. Give me the substantiation that supports it. What makes that uh, that's you know a viable claim? Um, I think the you, co I think codes codes ultimately a code implies that it's either a model to be prescribed or to be accepted and to be um, uh, required by mandated in law as a building code, for example, a fire safety code, a life safety code. So codes are forms of standards that are either written in a form that they're intended to be adopted by law or they are written and then mandated in the law. So a code is just another example of a standard, but usually one that eventually will become uh, mandatory or regulatory. Can you comment on the minimalism of these? Are all codes and standards a minimum requirement? Uh, the answer and, is, and, yeah, the answer is some are and some aren't. Um, there are some standards that are absolutely rigorous and very high level and provide very important guide, guides or safety or quality requirements and can be very high. And there are others that are minimal at best and are not sufficient even though they're published as a standard. And let me give you a flammability example where I'm expert. Um, the fe U.S. federal guidelines for clothing, general wearing apparel flammability has been on the books for over 50 years. It just got reapproved, my own opinion, unfortunately, my professional opinion, by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. That standard, giving you an example, that standard is the standard of care in the industry for all of the clothing that you're wearing right now and that I'm wearing. One sheet of newspaper from the Pittsburgh or Coriopolis daily newspaper, a single sheet of newspaper, passes that standard. Now, in my opinion, that not only is minimum, but it's insufficient, even though it's a federal regulation, to prevent extremely dangerous, defect, potentially defective um, products from coming into the market. So there are some standards that are minimum, but other standards uh, that can be very high level. But to put a broad brush across all standards and say they're the minimum is probably is not correct. You need to look at the standard um, and say, okay, does this provide the reasonable or best practice of care in the industry, or does that set the baseline above which I have to do better in my business? And it can be both of those. And I gave you one example where, you know, in my opinion, this federal flammability standard has been pathetic and wanting for a very long time. All right. Well, that's excellent. And we've got uh, a lot to... I, I've got to go back and listen to this again tomorrow, to be honest with you. <laughs> I'll just be back. I've enjoyed this so much. What we'd like to do is we're, we're coming up on an hour here, and I'd like to round this out a little bit and uh, finish with one more question. This one came again from Glenn Feldman. Then I'm going to have Cliff do one more, and then we're going to ask you if you uh, if there's anything we missed that you'd like to add. Once um, you used to serve as a leader on the ANSI board, and and lately it appears you've been a little critical of the ANSI process. Uh, why so? Yes, generally, um, large organizations and large boards are difficult simply by their structure and by the you know by the number of people on the board 
uh, to keep, as far as I'm concerned, abreast of innovative decision-making, um, to move rapidly and be very responsive to member needs. So I can remember a number of areas. I'll give you the one right now is um, social accountability or social responsibility. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, I proposed at the ANSI board that they should take over um, the whole area of corporate social responsibility and accountability and develop a national uh, guideline or standard, a standard guide. And I, they all look at me like I'm crazy. Here we are 15 years later, and there will soon be, um, in a, within another year to two, ISO 26000 International Guide on uh, uh, Social Responsibility. So they're, they're not as aggressive and as fast-moving as, for example, some of their members, such as ASTM, um, IEEE in the electronics area, um, ASME in mechanical engineering, American Welding Society. So simply by their structure, they're slow. And secondly, I personally believe given, and people know, you know, the, the Carl Grimes um, uh, situation and his comments, I think ANSI in my opinion, should be much more responsive in moving to board review, um, not board review, but the you know Executive Standards Council, Board of Standards Review, uh, to move to try to resolve and help resolve itself when there are uh, raised concerns or criticisms about a certain standards process rather than just bouncing it back to the uh, participants who may disagree and keep bouncing, you know, heads and balls back and forth instead of taking a more forthright opinion. I'm not saying who's right or wrong, but I think they just they need to be more responsive um, in terms of um, how they address and how they manage their own uh, due process procedures. But they are, the, they are the member, you know, they are a national member of the ISO, not the federal government. Um, and to the IEC on electrotechnical matters. So they play a critically important role representing the U.S. in the world standards arena, uh, which, as I said, is very friendly and also very competitive. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that and that whole issue. We've covered that pretty closely here on IAQ Radio, and I was a little frustrated with that same issue myself, that uh, they didn't take a more... Uh, aggressive or active role in trying to figure out what was going on there. But that's that's interesting. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for one more question. Um, well, there's one thing that I'd like to go off on a different, different tangent on. Uh, I'd like to, if you could just recap your study that you did in 1997, the preliminary investigation of the effects of ozone on post-fire volatile organic compounds, and just you know, if you could comment on what you were trying to prove or disprove and you know, a little bit on your study findings. Yes, thank you. Um, what we did was we had, since I was in fire protection engineering, we had this whole small residential building, which we called our burn building, where we did fire tests. So the entire interior was very smoky and charred from previous fires and off-gassing all of the odors and chemical species from previous fires. What I wanted to show was two very simple things. One, that ozone doesn't simply eliminate the species in the air. Some people simplistically think, well, you put the ozone in and everything that's smoky and odorous just kind of gets oxidizes and disappears. 
And so what we showed was, in fact, using really good chemistry and good ozone monitors in this environment, that what you do is you've got hundreds of chemical species existing in this particular you know, air in this burn, burn building. And when you ozonate them, and what Cliff and other people know very well now, you change the chemistry. You don't eliminate uh, all of these species. What you do is you oxidize those that can be chemically changed, and you produce other species that smell differently. Sometimes it's better. Sometimes the odor may be worse, you know, such as producing more aldehydes. Sometimes you may produce things that are more dangerous than what was there before. So one study was just to show that you're changing the chemistry, and the chemistry is very complicated. It's not this magic bullet that everything just kind of disappears and is better. The other thing we did is we wanted to show um, in that particular environment what is the half-life, meaning the decay of ozone having been done, not by people guessing, but done with very, very good chemistry and you know, $10,000 ozone monitors. And I published that in Cleaning and Restoration. And what we showed in that particular case, by actually tracking you know, in, in these experiments, the fact that in anything like from two hours to three hours to four hours, the ozone, when it reaches a relatively high level you know, from an ozone generator in a closed environment with a fan, um, will come down and comes down as expected exponentially to relatively low values. Um, and, and Marty King just recently commented that in the, on, the, in the, on the last issue, his own opinion um, in cleaning and restoration. But what it says is the half-life, meaning the time for half of the ozone concentration to decay, could be 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know, 40 minutes, depending upon the specific conditions. And instead of just talking about it, we actually showed the measurements, showed the graphs where we did it. And that was done years and years ago. So it was fairly on an effort to clarify this issue of how quickly or not does ozone decay um, under certain conditions. And that was the other, you know, that was the beginning, I think, of a a longer discussion on this so-called, quote, half-life of ozone and the time to decay. That's published in Cleaning and Restoration, um, as well as in a peer-reviewed uh, research journal on fire safety. Right. Sorry for the long answer, Cliff, but I hope it helps. No, no, no that was actually I wanted. That's exactly what I wanted. And uh, before we go, I just want to ask, uh, first, I want listeners to stick around. We've got a couple of announcements at the end of the show. But uh, was there anything that you would like to add that we missed? Uh, no, I think it's been a very full discussion. My key interest were to try to clarify this issue of the difference between guideline and standard, which is not a difference. Guideline is a subset of many different types of standards. And then the second issue that's critical in our industry is how do we understand the competition um, and the coexistence of different kinds of uh, restoration standards from one organization versus another, some ANSI approved, which may help, and others may not, and why they all exist and what are the differences between them, between the process. Uh, the last thing is, uh, it's not a, not a plug, but um, if anyone wants to learn more about it, uh, the American National Standards Institute at a website called www.standardslearn.org 
is a very basic online primer. The first one or two series, I think, are free to the public. And then my book on standardization essentials, published by CRC Press, um, which is Taylor and Francis. Um, the price has just come down to under $100, but it's, I think, the most definitive book on kind of national and regional standardization of all aspects with lots of cartoons. So it re could be very helpful. <laughs> well, you read my mind there. I wanted to ask one more time. What was the, what's the name of your book, and how can people purchase it? Uh, the book is uh, Standardization. Uh, let me just pull it up. I'm sorry. The book sure. is nope. the book is um, standardization essentials, and the authors are Spivak, S-P-I-V-A-K. That's me and Brenner. And the website would be www.crc press, which was Chemical Rubber Publishing previously. CRC Press. <laughs> Dot com, and the price has been as high as $160, but at my request, it's just been it's been brought down to $99.95, under $100. Well, I think you can be sure a few of us will be uh, purchasing that one, and I know I'll be recommending it to a couple of uh, people that I work with as well. Yeah, but I I've really tried to make thank... it very light. I've tried to make it light and readable with cartoons and simple examples, so it's not heavy. Standards is not heavy going, as many of you know. It's fun, it's competitive, it's social, it's interactive, and it can be very engaging. It just sounds boring, but it is not. There you go. <laughs> well, this is uh, Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to our, our this week's guest, Dr. Steve Spivak, for a fascinating discussion of uh, numerous topics, and we hope we can have you back again down the road. I thank you, and I appreciate all the listeners who are out there um, uh, in, on the, in on the conversation. Thank you all very, very much. Okay. All right. Let's also thank our sponsors, and then we've got a little announcement. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, for restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right, I want to thank all of our uh, listeners. Our technical director wasn't able to join us this week. Uh, I want to thank Glenn Feldman for sending in a few questions. Uh, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, uh, uh, it's always a pleasure. Did we break another record? Uh, you know, we did. Uh, that was the, the little announcement I'm, I'm going to have at the end, but that's okay. Uh, the wingman, Chris Boisel, we're trying to break it again. We have broke the record for downloads four weeks in a row now, and we're trying to break it again this week. So send out those announcements to your friends. They can download the show anytime, but uh, preferably before midnight on Sunday, is it, Chris, or Saturday? All right, so that we can break that record again. And what we'd like to do then is go on our little uh, summer hiatus here. We're going to take a three-week break. We'll be back with our next show in uh, four weeks. But uh, in the meantime, please download those previous shows and check us out uh, on the archives. And until the next show, when uh, we'll be sending out a few announcements to everyone between now and then. 
This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to our growing group of loyal listeners for joining us again, and come back in four weeks for the next edition of IAQ Radio. Have a great summer. This has been another IAQ Radio production.